to do a podcast for a while now but like I don't have anyone to do it with <laughs> right and so I was like Naomi I'm actually very excited because um I've been sort of out of reading fiction for a little while now because I've been reading a lot of nonfiction. so I'm excited to get back into the adult fiction world yeah well, and I'm excited to have a reason to read because I I don't think I would have told you this, but I'm autistic. And um, I found out like a year ago or so. I'm not officially mm -hmm. diagnosed, but I meet way too many of the like hallmarks to not be. Um, no, I can see that. That makes sense. Yeah, that's what everybody said. They're like, yeah, that checks out. Um, yeah. And so... I have executive dysfunction really bad, especially when I hit like a depressive episode. Yeah. Um, really bad. And so I want to do things like read and write and everything like that. But if it's not habitual, then, and for some reason, making reading habitual is harder than making writing habitual for me. No? Oh, for um, me, the other way around. Really? Yeah, oh, like, I read excessively, but because I've had that habit built into me since I was, like, eight, it's super easy. But for some reason, like, writing, I cannot do consistently. It's a struggle. Well, it's weird, because I feel like I, I read a ton up until, like, high school. I would seriously mm -hmm. read, like, a book a day. I was that yeah. kid in school. And then it just sort of tapered off, because high school was, I made high school way harder than I should have for myself. Uh, I feel like that's the story of my education is I made things way more difficult than they should have been. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds about right. <laughs> um, so I stopped reading as much, and then I, I sort of got back into it in college, but then when I got out of college, um, of course, I was working full-time, and then I also had grad school, and right. oh, man, you can't go on the desk. Um yeah yeah so I'm I'm excited to have someone to be not that you have to accept this responsibility but someone to <laughs> be accountable to you know yeah no I I'm okay with being that because I think I need the same kind of accountability with writing so if I know I'm reading with you I'll be like oh I should write something before I talk to her next so <laughs> it's gonna work out absolutely <laughs> and we can we can totally do um like writing sprints and stuff like that i can also um you 
I think it's too late to sign up for this. I think you have to do it in January, but there's a program I'm doing right now called Get Your Words Out, um, mm -hmm. where you make a goal for the year to either write so many days or write so many words. Mm -hmm. And I picked the words one, which is nice because then I don't have to, I tried writing every day for a while and that, it gets exhausting and then you feel guilty when you can't do it and stuff like that. Yeah. But I can, I can write to a word goal kind of. Um, and I don't have to do it necessarily every day, but I have that, that lasting goal to keep me kind of going. Um, but I can, I can give you the spreadsheet for it, I think, and they won't like hunt me down. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, obviously you'll have to delete all, or I'll, I'll make one for you and I'll, I'll delete all my stuff off of there, but you can insert your own goal, but yeah. That's, that's been super helpful. I've been writing a ton this year just because I'm like, oh, I've got this goal and now I want to like, you know, yeah. But anyway, um, do you want to, should we introduce ourselves to start? I feel like we've talked for a while <laughs> and if people are listening to us, they don't know who we are. So that's, that's probably a good idea. Okay. Uh, I guess I'll go first. So my name's Casey. Uh, do we want to do, what do we want to say about ourselves? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I guess, I guess if uh, I'll pretend we're at reunion and everyone who has forgotten who I am or something like that. So my name's Casey. Um, uh, she, her pronouns. And I really like science fiction and fantasy in particular. I'm not a huge fan of horror so that part of the podcast is going to be a little interesting um <laughs> but i especially like fantasy i write a lot of fantasy fiction um not published yet um but i did get a degree in creative writing at holland's where i went to school with naomi and mm -hmm. i have a master's degree in library science which is pretty cool so i my name is naomi i have a degree in philosophy i also basically have <coughs> um, had a minor in classics. I studied classics a bit. I had to drop the major, unfortunately. I have had a bunch of different jobs. I've changed jobs every six to 12 months in the past five years, so that's been fun. I grew up watching fantasy adventure stuff, so that's part of my DNA at this point. So I'm really excited about that. I haven't read much horror either. So I'm excited to learn more about that genre. Uh, I think that's everything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and since we have also not said this so far, this is a podcast called Umbrella Genre, uh, where Naomi and I are going to read books based in the fantasy, science fiction, and horror broad genres. Um, and those three together, their powers combined, make the speculative fiction genre, and that's called an umbrella genre. So there you go, title drop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so the book that we, uh, so it was, it was kind of my idea to start this particular podcast. I'm sure Naomi will tell me about her podcast ideas, and maybe we'll do others together, which would be fun. Um, but I got this idea last year in early 2018 after Ursula Le, K. Le Guin died. Um, and I don't know why, it just came to me one day as I was 
sitting at my computer pining about being out of work for a little while mm -hmm. and um, to, to really, there was something in her death that really inspired me and I wanted to know more about the things that I loved in, in writing and in sci-fi and, and fantasy and, and horror fiction. Um, cause horror is, horror is just a natural link to the other three. I felt like I, I found a little bit, um, but I wanted to do the podcast and kind of based around that premise. Uh, so that's why it exists. <laughs> um, and it's also the reason why I asked Sammy if we could do the book we're doing today, which is Rockin' Anne's World, uh, which was Ursula Le Guin's first published novel. So. Oh, was it really? It was. It was her first novel-length piece of work. She'd written a lot of shorter stories before that. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, I wanted to do her very first one, especially since I thought about doing, because we talked about this, we talked about why, don't, why not Wizard of Earthsea, because I feel like that's the one that everyone knows. Would you Would you agree? I, I don't know as much about the, like, a, adult fiction world because I spent a lot of time in children's fiction and nonfiction, but I would say probably mm -hmm. RC, especially because they made that horrible movie. <laughs> um, if we ever do an RC episode, we can talk about the horrible movie. Oh, wow. Also about the Miyazaki film. I did not see that one, but um, uh, we'll have yeah. to. I, I haven't seen it either. She, I did read though that she said about the Miyazaki film that she's like, they made a good movie. It just wasn't a movie about my book necessarily. So, I, if it's not Ursi, I actually think that probably The Left Hand of Darkness is her more popular one because I've heard a lot more people talk about that in literary circles. Mm -hmm. But which I read, I read one of the Hainish novels. I don't remember the title that I didn't realize it was like part of a world and. Mm -hmm. So it was really cool to be able to go to Rockin' world and read that one, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, I really liked it too. And I, originally when I thought of the podcast, I thought about doing like a minor biography or bibliography mm -hmm. on certain authors and doing like five or six books in an episode. And I was like, maybe uh, not. Yeah. <laughs> of course, it kind of became apparent that even though when I set my mind to it, I'm a pretty voracious reader. That's a lot, especially yeah. since, like, for starting episodes, I was thinking, like, doing this in 30 minutes to 45 minutes, not really going over an hour. Mm -hmm. And, but during that time, I was reading on her website and, like, what her recommended order for the Hainish books was, because mm -hmm. I heard of Left Hand of Darkness as well, but I hadn't heard of Rockin' Anne's World until I started looking into her. Yeah. And she goes, for the Hainish books, you could maybe read them in the order I wrote them. Is pretty <laughs> she, she's like you should be talking in first followed by the lost planet or the exile planet whichever the one the next one is planet of exile planet of exile thank you and then I she, like the book with the collection of them so that's the only reason oh yeah well, I, <laughs> I, i'm holding this up like people are going to see it eventually <laughs> i have uh the the three hainish novels i think this is the only way you can get them anymore is in the like collected version i don't know possibly but that's because they don't really the thing that i find interesting about this this is more of a novella length because in mm -hmm. the mid-60s they would publish these short novella books together where there'd be two and when you 
reach the middle, you would flip the book around and upside down and there would be a different author and a different novella on the other side. Mm -hmm. So that's how originally Rakanan was published. And they don't do a lot of novella length books anymore because it's not, they, you can't make money off of it unless right. they're very, very well known as an author. Like Neil Gaiman could get away with that because- George R. R. Martin does too. Right. Those are the only, like, big, big name authors are really the only ones who are getting novellas published anymore because there's not money in it. But back right. in the 1950s, 1960s, there was a, it was actually more likely to make money from doing shorter novels because you could get them out more quickly. Sorry. I remember where I was going with that, but that was just something I read. I thought it was interesting. Well, it is kind of interesting because I, I noticed that originally, um, not to talk too much about Earthsea, but when I was reading Earthsea books, I think A Wizard of Earthsea is like something like 45,000 words. Probably. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why most often, even though her books have some very high concept themes in them, they oh, yeah. get still kind of marketed as kids' books because they're so much shorter than your average fantasy novel is today that there's so dense though there's a lot like not in a bad way but there's a lot happening like this one was in the printing i have it's only like 100 pages 120 pages but there's mine's, a lot that happens yeah no mine's 112 and i was like wow i i ended up rereading re the whole thing this morning before we started talking because i i had started reading it earlier and then i was like okay i need to finish so we can go talk about it but then yeah. I was like, I don't quite remember what happened. So I just, I was like, it's 112 pages. I'll just flip back to the beginning and yeah. read it again. Um, but it's it's a very readable book, which I don't yeah. know why that surprises me. Maybe because it took me forever to read A Wizard of Earthsea. And when I, I did, I was like, why are these in the children's section? They're so... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why Earthsea books They're are They're incredibly in the readable. Don't get me wrong. Like, I think... A, a 12 or 13 year old would have no trouble reading any of her writing, but they're so high concept. And they do move, they're, they're paced a, a little bit slower, especially because nowadays that you have to pace things faster because mm -hmm. we're such a movie culture, but because these are older, the Ursi ones move a lot slower and she takes her time with them. Rokanon moves a lot faster, I found. There's a lot more, the scenes change more quickly. There's a lot more happening. It's a little bit more higher paced. So I think that's part of why these are a little bit easier to read or faster to read than the Ursi books. Well, Rokanon, I feel like it's, it's very much a quest narrative. So, yes. um, I wonder if we should summarize the book because oh. people may not have heard oh, also, it. Before we do that, is it Rokanon or Rokanon? I or feel like I don't even know. If I, I've been saying Rokanon because when do they, they like, so she spells it in the narrative as R C R O C A N N O N. And then when they're talking on the planet. Right, like what the dude calls him. Bells it differently. He does it R A K A N A N. Yeah, something like that. And I was kind of trying to be informed by that. So when other people are speaking, it's spelled R O K A N A N. And I kind of feel like that's rocking on because the hard K. But I don't know. 
Well, if we're pronouncing it wrong, apologies to Liguin. Yes. <laughs> so, did you want to summarize, or did you want me to summarize? You could summarize. I'm okay. terrible at summarizing, like, horrible. So, we fit to you. <laughs> so, this will, I think, kind of in broad strokes, I won't try and get too specific, because I don't really want to spoil it. I think this is something that people should go read. Like yes. we said, it's very short. If it's over 30,000 words, it's not that much more than 30,000 words, I would say. Um, but basically, the idea, uh, the story starts out with a prologue about, which was actually originally a short story that Le Guin wrote, and then it mm -hmm. kind of informed her thinking on the world when she expanded into a novel, or a novella, really. Um, and it's called The Necklace. And so we start out on a world um, that doesn't really have a name, necessarily, um, with a woman named, what's her name? It's Semily. Semily. I kept saying Semily as well, and I was like, huh, that sounds like the mother of Dionysus, something I want to talk oh. about in a little bit. Um, so I was trying to figure out why that name sounded familiar, and now I feel really dumb that I didn't connect it to that. Wow. Don't feel dumb. So we start out kind of with a woman named Semily, um, and in, in that first prologue, she's trying to recover a necklace that used to belong to her family. But there are these star lords that come from space and they were demanding tribute and her family had to give that up. And it was like the one piece of wealth that she really had. Even though on her world, people can recognize her as high birth because she has dark skin and golden colored hair. Um, another thing I want to talk about is the Gwen's interpretation of race later on, but anyway. Um, so she goes to, she kind of has a little mini quest where she's going to try and find the necklace. So she goes to the other races on her planet and is like, do you know where this went? And she finally gets in touch with the, the Star Lords who we find out are cosmonauts kind of. And they're from other planets in this like League of, League, what did they call it? The League of Worlds? Probably. It was something based off the League of Nations. Um, it, it's a League of Worlds that is preparing for, they're trying to band together uh, certain, or really any planet they can get their hand on and train fighters for a war that is coming. Um, again, very League of Nations. <laughs> but uh, so, but first they'll send out people um, who are, just supposed to observe the societies and, and make like notes from anthropologists. Them. Yeah, they're anthropologists, basically. Yeah. And so uh, suddenly Bord's rocking on ship. She, he's like, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't give her back the necklace. It doesn't really matter to us. We're just here to observe. And so he gives her back the necklace. And then she, and then they're like, okay, we'll send you back down to your planet. Well, because of how space travel works, um, it took her eight years to get aboard their ship or to get into contact with them. And then it's more time has passed by the time she gets down. I think her trip takes like 16 years in total, if I remember correctly. Oh, maybe. I thought it was eight years, but maybe it was eight years both way. I don't remember. It was eight years both ways because her daughter's like a little girl, like a, a one or two year old. And then she gets back oh. and her daughter's a full grown woman. So it, I thought it took eight years both ways. That would um, make sense, because I'm remembering eight. Yeah. So um, 
And then in part one, we get into the story of Rakanen, where there's kind of a rebellion going on against the League of Worlds. And I really need to find out if that's the actual name of that thing. But, um, and Rakanen's ship gets shot down, and he's the only survivor of that. None of their data survives, none of his friends survive. And so um, he has to set out on this quest to to find the, the rebellion. The enemy. Yeah, the enemy stronghold. And his friends... Uh, Geez, I'm really not prepared for this. I will be better next time. <laughs> um, so, Semele's grandson, whose name Mogian. is Mogian, thank you, um, is Rockinan's friend, and he agrees to go with him on this quest to find the stronghold. It's actually, it was making me laugh a little bit because when he he goes to like the the queen, the daughter of Semele, and says, you know, I have to go to the enemy camp and I have to try to get a message to my people. And she's like, sure, sure, you can go with my son Mogan and four random dudes. And I'm, my head immediately said, oh, hello, red shirts. <laughs> which, oddly enough, uh, yeah, talking about yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not all of them ended up being red shirts, so which is exciting. Anyway, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt. No, that's okay. Continue. It's it's very easy to kind of point out the tropes that we're familiar with, especially <laughs> since she's writing this in the '60s, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Um, so from there, they kind of have little mini quests and side quests. On it, it is very sort of Tolkienian in a way that they mm -hmm. have little stops along the way. It kind of reminds me a little bit of The Hobbit. In that you know they'll get stopped in this one yeah. camp because the, um, the yeah the different people or the wind steeds which are griffins kind of are tired and they need to rest um, or yeah. they'll get to a certain point and Rock and Anne gets captured by these uh, more primitive per people who have no masters and don't adhere to the etiquette of the world and Vikingish I felt like. <laughs> and um, so eventually they have to climb this really treacherous mountain range and they get over the top two of their party have perished so they're down to uh rockinan mogian they picked up a um a number a uh, member of another race whose village got destroyed named keo and yes who's the guy that's left at that point Yahan or how are no, you? No, Reho. So Yahan is one of the guys that's left, and he's pledged his service to Rockinan at that point. And then Mogian's favorite person is Reho. And then there's a weird interval where they get kidnapped by these oh. angel-looking creatures. They're like insect-like. Um, they're very creepy. Yes. And uh, Reho gets brought in to be eaten by their larvae. So he's dead. <laughs> and then Which in the way they kill people, it looks like they're like kissing you, but really they're draining you of your essence, which is just extra levels of creepy that I really appreciate. <laughs> yes. So um so they make it over the mountains at that point. And I Mokian dies, but I couldn't really he falls off a cliff, doesn't he? Like no. he's so um well that I mean, this is going to give away some spoilers, but um, Rokanon, like, he goes into this 
cave type thing on the other side of the mountain and he meets this ancient race who it's like beyond telepathy but they are communicating without words and the dude in the cave gives Rokanan the ability to understand to like mind speak with the enemies that way he can find them and so Rokanan is sort of in the midst of this gift that he's been given and he accidentally ends up calling one of the enemy to them and he's in a helicopter and Mogan is on one of the flying steeds and tries to attack the helicopter and is killed Okay, because I didn't quite understand that exchange. Like, I knew the helicopter got there, and I was going back and rereading it, and I was like, it's, I get what's going on here. It's very abstract, because even though it's told through, like, the third person, it's it's only through Rokinon's point of view. And so since he's in this space where he he's not entirely himself right now, his mind is spread out through the entire enemy. So he's very... Mm-hmm overwhelmed and doesn't I don't he's not even really sure what's going on and it's not really until afterward when he goes to the castle nearby where he's able to sort of process it so it's very difficult and that which is interesting because then the death of Mogan it doesn't hit you as emotionally as it might have otherwise because he's so his mind is so scattered in the moment that it happens that he doesn't fully experience it, which I thought was an interesting choice to make story-wise. Yeah. Well, and you don't expect a character like Mogan to die. He's the... Well, but you're told, like, Semley's daughter, I can't remember her name, Hadra or something like that? Haldry. Haldry? She tells Rokanon that she thinks that that she knows that Mogan's not coming back, that he's going to die. And even uh, the chapter or two before Rokanon goes into the cave and meets the the random dude, he says he feels death coming for him and that the, the shadowed man they keep seeing is his death coming. And so he's expecting to die. You're actually warned multiple times that he's going to die. Yeah, and I... I kind of felt that too, but it's an interesting choice in in terms of. Um, let me finish the recap real quick, and then we sorry, can talk. Sorry. So, no, it's okay. <laughs> it's the way both of our brains work. We're like dissect, dissect, dissect. Um, <laughs> so after Rokanon receives this gift, he's able to. They do take a short sojourn. He and um, Johan, Yehan, Yehan go to a castle where it's the sort of progenitors of their society that had come down from the mountain and created the world that he's been interacting with. Um, so they have very similar manners and things. And he takes some time to recover there because he does get blasted by the helicopter. And that I understood. So he does need time to recover. But once he's recovered, like just barely, he's going to go to the enemy base. He gets there um, and he sends, and they have a way of sending instant messages um, most messages. I know. I said that. I was like, basically, <laughs> I am Yahoo messages and <laughs> away messages. Yeah. Anyway, um, it's the 1960s. That was innovative. Um, so they yeah. have a way because in space travel, like we're saying, it can take you eight years to get somewhere. So you'll end up in the quote-unquote future. But they have a way of circumventing that with certain message sending devices where it will send it instantly. 
And so Rokinon sends a message to the League of Worlds. Um, then he creeps out of the base. He thinks nothing's going to happen, that maybe the message got diverted. And then it all explodes. And he's like, I guess that's that done. Good. <laughs> yeah. So he goes back to the castle. Um, the lady of the castle there, whose husband has been killed, asked him, asks him to stay. Um, and Rokinon sends Yehan back to um, where they'd come from. Is it Holland? I think it's Holland. Yeah. Um, to let everybody know what's happened. And the last, I have to read this last passage because it's just so, it just is. Um, so this is the last two paragraphs of the book. Uh, they walked side by side, seven steps up to the parapet. And then Ganyi, looking up to the blue sky, dim bulwark of the mountain said, stay here, stay with us here. Rakanen paused a little and then said, I will for a while, but it was for the rest of his life. When the ships of the League returned to the planet and Yehan guided one of the surveys south to Bregna to find him, he was dead. The people of Bregna mourned their lord and his widow, tall and fair-haired, wearing a great blue jewel set, set in gold at her throat, greeted those who came seeking him. So he never knew that the League had given the world his name. Uh, and that was my cat meowing. So me reading featuring Munch, but it just ends so abruptly where, and yet not abruptly at all. It's like, we've been going on this quest with him this whole time. And then it's just like, well, the quest is over. So the story's over. And, and I, I so appreciate Le Guin's brevity and her tightness within her writing because she never, I feel like she never minces with words. She yeah. doesn't do the sort of fantasy trope of um, describing everything <laughs> to the point of, like, there was some... It's not like Return of the King where you're like, is it over? Oh, no. Oh, wait. Is it over? Oh, nope. Nope. There's more. Like, the Return of the King, which I love Tolkien, but the Return of the King, like, doesn't end. You, it just keeps going and going. So and I do like that. West. Like, it's like, yeah. okay, journey's end. We're done. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> She's like, yep, he died. That's it. Um, but no, I admire that about her because there is kind of the joke of like, how do you know you're in a fantasy novel versus like a historical fiction? And it's that in the midst of five paragraphs describing the food of the banquet feast they're at, and they're like, oh yeah, and somebody killed the king. And it's like, no, she doesn't do any of that. And I yeah. so admire that in her writing because I am one of those people who will like go on at length and I have to remind myself, I'm like, no, no, no. Don't you have a plot? Don't go working another one into the story because you just feel like it or whatever. Um, but that ending actually really reminded me of, and and several other things in the book really reminded me of a Greek tragedy almost. And I wanted to talk to you about that because I know you're so into the classics. She, um, I I read the um the intro the book that I had. It had an, the introduction from the 1960s or 70s book. I don't remember, but um, she said that she was highly influenced by Norse mythology and by the Icelandic sagas in general, because she grew up with the Icelandic sagas. So you can definitely feel that that adventure tragedy aspect. And those do also end very abruptly to those who are used to sort of the drawn out endings. 
So mm -hmm. you can definitely see the influence of the Icelandic sagas on her work. And the Icelandic sagas were influenced by Greek tragedy because they were written down by these men who were so influenced by the Western education. Well, and they were written down much later than versions of myth that we have, like Homer, who probably didn't write the Odyssey, but he wrote it down, wrote it down in like 900 BC or thereabouts, if I'm remembering correctly. And so that was around Snorri Sigurdsson is his last name. Is that Sigurdsson. right? Yeah. The, the guy who wrote the Edda. He wrote down the Edda in what, 1100 BC? Uh, it, was yeah, it was much, much, much later. It was much, much later. And so you have these stories that are uh, maybe not circulating as widely, especially with the, the advent of Christianity, but are still circulating mm -hmm. and are still influencing other canon. Um, and I, I definitely see the Icelandic bit as well. I think I was kind of influenced by the Greek mythology because I kept reading Semele's name and going, yeah. <laughs> where is there an Isis? Um, well, because the, the, the necklace the, the, with the blue, it's based on the Brisinger necklace, the one that the dwarves make for um, Freya. Freya. Yeah. yeah. But even the, she, because uh, Rokinon is, is very much an Odinic figure. Well, because he's got the, later on, he's got the staff that he lights on fire. When he yeah. stains the, the sort of uh, crude people, they keep trying to burn him at the stake, but he has this spacesuit that won't let him get burned. And at last he, like, takes this one long staff-like thing from the fire that's lit yeah. up on him. And he's like, ha! And they're like, get out of here! <laughs> yeah. They're scared of him. And one of his friends, uh, Yehan, who's the only one with him at that point, is like, are you magic? And he's like, no. <laughs> and he goes, well, I guess I'm here to play the part of the wizard. The other yeah. part that really kind of reminded me of a mythology is when he comes out of the cave mm -hmm. with sort of the telepathy knowledge, his hair has gone white. And I was like, oh, it's Moses with the burning bush. And <laughs> or even so more modern, which obviously this came afterward, but like in uh, X-Men where her hair goes white. Where she gets like the streak. Oh, I can't remember her name. Know. Yeah. So yeah, there's definitely a tradition of that where you go in and you get this gift, but it ages you. Mm -hmm. And um, when he gets when Rokanan gets shot by the the helicopter, he loses his one hand or the ability to use one hand. I don't remember if it's the left or the right. It's the and, right. The right hand. Yeah. And that is definitely a mythology thing and the hero journey thing where it's the, uh, I think, apotheosis, where I don't remember, but where you, you always, you lose the ability to use part of your body, just mm -hmm. like Odin lost his one eye. And so in order to get a great gift, there has to be a sacrifice. And in these hero journeys, there's always some sort of loss that then allows you to be able to go beyond what a normal human would would get to. Yeah, and I think that's then all of those themes really interest me, especially because I don't think for one second I forgot this is a sci-fi novel. Mm -hmm. Like Rockin' Anne is a person from outer space of this planet. 
we are on a planet that is not Earth, and Earth is explicitly mentioned in the book. Rakanen's stepfather was from Earth. And so it's like, you never forget that. It's so masterfully woven in, you don't suspect you're in a fantasy novel for one second. And I read, um, I think it was in Orson Scott Card's, he wrote a book about writing sci-fi and fantasy. And he was talking about how you have to be kind of careful when blending your tropes because he had written a story where it was about a monk, but a monk on a foreign world. And he submitted to a a sci-fi magazine and they're like, we don't take fantasy, we're just sci-fi. And he was, but it is a sci-fi story. It takes place on another planet. But he'd never made that apparent in the story. And you don't you don't miss any of that in in Rock and Ant's world. You always Sorry. Yeah, I was gonna say you always know you're on another planet. You always recognize that there are some science fiction elements to the story, even you know, when it seems like Rock and Ant's performing magic and he's scaring the locals. Which is very impressive because she had never done sci-fi before at this point. She had really only done fantasy, but she's like, well, this is a popular thing. And she didn't read any of it, really, and she had done no research. She's just like, well, I like science and I like fantasy, so I'm going to write a sci-fi fantasy book. And so the fact that she's able to integrate it so well is just really impressive as a writer to be able to do that. She is so massively impressive. And it's I think you see a lot of Le Guin's background in this book, especially because her father was an anthropologist. Uh-huh. Um, and so she never, she never forgot that. I think uh, like when she was, when she was writing, she always integrated some of what she'd learned from him and what he had learned about other cultures into her work. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of her characters are, um, like, obviously, they're not white, and we can't impose our cultural structures and things on a on a fantasy novel or whatever. But she always, like, explicitly describes a lot of her characters in this book and in other stories as having dark skin. Yeah. And she just always kind of amazes me that she does that. Except for Rockin'on's fair-skinned. But he's a star-lord, so he doesn't count. <laughs> But yeah, no, I, I always really appreciated that, that there is, like, obviously it's it's limited because she's early in her writing career, but there's still that idea of diversity in the world where, like, the um, the Fians are, are, even though they're, they're technically gendered, they come across as very androgynous and they're, like, more of this collective and how you have people of different skin tones. And I really appreciate that there's a lot more diversity happening than there would have been in most of the books coming out at that time. Like many of the books coming out now, I feel like. Well, that, <laughs> that too, don't get me started. But yeah. <laughs> and I know she definitely grows into that diversity as she progresses as a writer, but that she was that aware that early in her writing career is very nice. Just, yeah. I almost... I, I would want to see an adaptation of Rock and Anne's World, maybe as like, or maybe of the, the Heinish books, because some of these are so short, they wouldn't even make like three episodes. Yeah. <laughs> a show. But if you put them all together, maybe you'd get a couple seasons out of it. But I, I would also be kind of afraid that 
they wouldn't do it justice in a way because you see that so much in adapting. Well, that I know we said we weren't really going to talk about Ursi, but that happened with Ursi when they changed it to a movie adaptation. Ged, who is supposed to be super, super dark skinned, he's played by like the Scandinavian dude. Why? When I saw that happening, I almost threw something that was in my hand because I was just so angry. Because yeah. this woman went out of her way to make sure that she included people of darker skin because they weren't in any of the novels and they still aren't to a great degree. And so why that wasn't respected, I don't know. Yeah, she was, I remember reading that she was actually very upset with the miniseries. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and you go back and you watch it and it's sort of laughable now. But anyway, if we ever do Earthsea, we'll talk more about that. <laughs> but um, yeah, I... And one of the things that, about this book that I really liked was the prologue. I really enjoyed it because it's more from the woman's perspective. And it has a lot of that feeling of, I don't know if you've read George MacDonald's Fantasties. I have not. It's, a, it's like a fairy romance where it feels much more like a legend and like a story and not entirely real like you almost feel like you're dreaming along with the character and the prologue has that feeling which works really well because it connects with toward the ending where Rokanan is in this cave and they they both sort of have to make this journey down into the dark and she has this theme that shows up a lot in her books so I really enjoyed how the prologue was separate and by itself and you have this journey and how it parallels a lot of what happens later in in Rokanan's life. Well, it is almost it, like for the first couple chapters, it's almost an exact parallel because she has to go to the cave dwelling people and he has to go there looking for the same ship that she was looking for. And he has they have to go into places unknown and she goes onto the Star Lord's vessel, which no one has ever done before. Yeah. And there is that descent, the belly of the whale, so to speak, in the hero's journey, <laughs> that they're very much parallel to each other. And that Semele undergoes the journey first and kind of directly sort of sets off some of the events in Rock and Anne's mm-hmm. world because he says that after she came onto the ship and she was so torn up about that necklace that he was he sent back to the homeworld and he's like, we need to stop pillaging these people and and making them give us you know, their treasures because it's affecting them. And that directly affected some of the things in the book. Like the cave dwelling people aren't as willing to help them because they haven't been getting communication from the Star Wars. Uh, and because the it's sort of implied that the rebellion that's going on might have had something to do with Rakanon's request as well. Well, so also, he- partly be- there was an there's an idea of irony happening because he tells the League, stop paying attention to this world, leave it alone. And so now when the enemy rebellion uses it basically as a base camp, no one will know because no one's paying attention to the world anymore. So in trying to save the world, he's doomed it. Yeah. And it it's an interesting look at, you know, Rakanon is not the faultless hero that you, you get sometimes in fantasy, which yeah. there's a time and place, I think, for a certain type of story where the faultless hero works, but 
she makes him so earnest and so wanting to help, and yet his actions do have consequences. Yeah. Um, because he, he wants to do the right thing, um, but he, I think it also speaks to the fact that uh, the League of Worlds is doing colonialism. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just to put it mildly. And Rockinan's like, maybe we, we shouldn't do colonialism as much, but he doesn't understand at first how enmeshed in the system that he is. Where yeah. just requesting that is not going to help anything. You know, it. there are forces far beyond his requesting and understanding that he cannot control. Well, not even that. You can, you can see how embedded it is in his thought process. Because when, it, at one point, I think when he's in the angel town, he's, he's thinking about it. He's like, we should not just look at what can we get from them technology-wise, but we should be paying more attention to how their brain works. So he's still thinking of how to weaponize people. He just thinks it's important to weaponize culture instead of just technology. And you're like, dude, you're still still trapped in that mindset of how do we use people. Yeah. And it, it, it you know, coming from someone who, who did sort of with intent look at culture in uh, probably a greater way than I think a lot of writers might have at the time and even today and a lot of people even not just you know fiction writers because of her her background with her father as an anthropologist and I think she said that she traveled a lot when she was a kid that you know she she recognized that if you even if you make a choice to do better you can't always necessarily divorce yourself from the system. Yeah. And it's it's an interesting message to get because Rockin' Ann still goes and even recognizing like what the League of Worlds has done is wrong in the past, he goes and destroys the rebellion. He is Darth yeah. Vader in that moment kind of genocide guy. Yes. They just destroy them without prejudice. <laughs> and so it's but he's still the hero of the story. We're still rooting for Rockinon and not the rebellion. And it's entirely based on the perspective that we're getting the story from. Um, is interesting because it reflects on Le Guin herself because in, in the one introduction that I read by her, she's saying the same thing about how, about like from a feminist point of view, like this story is very male centered and very much populated with males like everywhere and she's a woman and so she's writing a lot of stories from the male point of view and how even though as a feminist she she knows about how it's important to include the the female perspective but how she's so entrenched in our society that you can see how even she is limited in what she's able to do and so I think there's definitely a parallel between Rokanan and his problems with colonialism and the problems with being a female writer in a male-dominated world where it's so difficult to get outside of your own bias. Mm -hmm. Well, and it kind of reminds me a little bit of Margaret Atwood in that she said, you know, even as women, we're kind of always looking at ourselves through the male gaze. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> that actually reminds me of a really funny thing I, I saw on Tumblr once, but um, <laughs> I'll tell you later. Um, <laughs> I feel like a bunch of people, if they ever listen to this, they're going to be like, what was the funny thing? Tell us. But it it does definitely remind me of that, of like, you know, you, 
you cannot just change yourself sometimes you have to change the whole system in which you're working otherwise mm -hmm. no matter how hard you try or whatever changes you make like you said he's still thinking in the same mindset even though he's asked them to leave this world alone you know it's nothing has really ch changed that much if anything some things have been made worse yeah and actually it made me really interested to know more about the politics and should we really be rooting for this league of worlds or maybe the rebellion's correct maybe their politics is better or maybe they're both terrible it it just made me want to know more about what was happening and who should we actually be rooting for well, and especially in our day and age, where the government, shall we say, the government, leave it at that. <laughs> um, there's a there's a lot of political strife going on, I think, in our time, and not just in the U.S., but all everywhere. Around, everywhere. Um, and so, and I think it's it's fair to say that there are people, not necessarily in the political arena. Um, or not in a political office, I should say, that think of themselves as kind of the rebels mm -hmm. in terms of the empire. And, you know, we've, we've been brought up on, I think there are so many rebellion stories in pop culture like Star Wars and, uh, you know, that uh, stories that kind of derive themselves from Star Wars that we, we sort of, we don't always think of rebellion as a bad thing. And so to, to come in here and see this sort of pre-Lucensian story, and it's like, of course Rockinan's going to go and destroy the rebel base as you're reading it. We're like, yeah, makes sense. He's with the League of Worlds that's the on the top of the heap. It kind of, you know, I, I didn't really question it on a first reading. I'm like, of course he's got to go do that. They shot down his ship and killed all his friends. <laughs> Immediately I'm like, wait, but what if the rebels are not the bad guys here? Like, your people came in and totally, like, messed with this culture and ignored the, this, like, the, the people, the races that you thought were less than you. Like, there's, there's some problems here. I have questions. <laughs> like, maybe don't just go blow up a bunch of people just because, you know, they've killed some people, but so have you. So what makes you better? Yeah. And it's, I, I don't know that we would necessarily, did you read ahead? I didn't get a chance to read Planet, Planet of Exile or... Um, I didn't, I want to. Illusions. Yeah, and I want to read the rest of these two and go on to um, Left Hand of Darkness, the, world for, the Word for World is Forest, and the other books in the High Enish series. But, um, yeah, I, I kind of get the feeling that we'll never get an answer to that. Oh, that probably it sort of, Yeah, that it was sort of the end stop on this observation of a little bit um and i don't think it's supposed to give you answers i know we live in a society that's very much like based on science and answers and you know what's the definition and i think part of why i was a philosophy major was because it's not always about getting an answer. It's about asking the right questions. And I think that's part of what I like about Le Guin's work is because it invites questions to start asking like, well, who was right? Is Were either of them right? And how does that affect how we look at our world? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I like that it, it, it does, it does feel like it invites you to question the text a little bit. 
especially with um she does a few minor info dumps in the form of like their uh anthropological records oh yeah and and that alone it kind of is like well what are these what is that and so you start off i i think that happens with a lot of sci-fi and fantasy and even horror is you're like you, you get dropped into an unfamiliar f- location and you're told to start asking questions. And so if there's a, a particular genre, that's one of the best ways to ask philosophy questions. It's one where, you know, you start out in an unfamiliar place and you get to know the space around you by questioning what's going on and in the questions you keep going. So I, I think she chose really well in inviting us into this narrative and I, I think you're right is in that it you know you get to the end and there's still kind of this question of but wait why <laughs> <laughs> so yeah yeah definitely definitely and it, it just, oh sorry you first <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say is your is yours about a philosophy thing because mine is not Oh no, no, mine was more just as a storytelling, it was very practical for her to choose an ethnologist, anthropologist, because it's easier to do the info dumping for the reader, because obviously the reader doesn't know the world. And mm-hmm. so if you're from Mogan's point of view, he's not going to stop and explain things to you because, well, one, he's Mogan and he wants to go fight things. And mm-hmm. so, but also he lives there, so he wouldn't question how the world works. And using an ethnologist is just gives the the writer an easier way to explain the world and what's happening for the reader. Well, and, and when Mogion does occasionally stop to address Rockanon's lack of knowledge, it can be done very simply. Like when they go into uh, the cave people's lairs, they come to a point where they get to kind of a, a Wizard of Oz-esque room and the wall is talking to them. <laughs> and Mogian's like, don't talk back to it. Hey, you had a question about this one thing. And they're talking about the sky seeds for a little bit um, yeah. until they go on. And all we need is Mogian to say, hey, you know, you might not know this, but don't talk to them. We're waiting to talk to the actual manager of the situation, yeah. <laughs> the actual leader. Um, I, I do. There's there's definitely these little bits of humor happening because I love how annoyed the the people are where they, they think they can trick them by speaking to these holes in the rock. And they're just talking about horse breeding or, or the um, the steed breeding. And they come out and they're just kind of like huffing and they're like, oh, well, fine, follow us. <laughs> by the way, we got rid of your ship. So that. <laughs> So, so that, um, <laughs> I was going to say is yeah. early on, I think it was in chapter three, it's on my page 43, it might be on a different page in your book, but it's in chapter three, where one of the villages they stop at call uh, Rakanon a, a pedon or a pedonon. And I was thinking at first, because the way they explain it at first, I was like, wait, what? Um, they explain it as I have to look at this now because I want to. I want to read exactly what they said because <laughs> I stopped it. I was like, "Huh." Um, While you look for that, I just want to share a sentence I or a description I really enjoyed, where she says there was a cluster of huts like wet chickens, and I absolutely <laughs> love that description so much. She's great. I love her. <laughs> um, 
So it says, uh, Rockinan could partly follow the old Gior dialect and gathered that the old man was pleading that the village had no proper housing for Pedinar, whatever they were. The tall midman Raho joined Rehan and spoke fiercely, but the old man only hitched and bowed and mumbled till at last Mogian strode forward. Um, so then Rakanan asks uh, Keo, what are the Pednar? The little man only smiled. Um, Yehan, what is that word, Pednar? The young midman, a good-natured, candid fellow, looked uneasily. Well, Lord, a Pedin is one who walks among men. And Rockinan just kind of accepts this, but I went, wait, what? And for a moment, like later on in the book, it comes up again when Ro- uh, when Rockinan does the magic trick where he's not being burned alive because of a spacesuit and he pulls the stick from the fiery blaze. Uh, and so you kind of get the impression that a pedinar or a pedin is someone who does magic. But in this description, I was like, are they calling him gay? <laughs> I was I was kind of because <laughs> I, I didn't go there at all. That's hilarious. Well, um, maybe it's because I'm queer and I'm like every like you're always looking for like that one small bit right. of <laughs> of queer coding in the, the literature. And I but I was like, they have no proper housing for him. Okay, and then it's one who walks among men. I can, I can see, see that. Yeah. <laughs> Usually the, the one who walks among men is more of an idea of a god coming from the heavens to walk among men. So that's, yeah. that's why like, I didn't even, I have too much mythology in my head, so I, even though mythology is super gay. But I, I get it. But I was, I was kind of thinking of that, and I'm like, but wait, <laughs> why is that the description we get? Specifically about men, but it's it's more of a mankind kind of a men than yeah. a men men sort of thing. But yeah, I, I saw that and I was like, huh. <laughs> and it's, was not, it's not as if I think you can't do a queer reading in some of her other works as well. So yeah, absolutely. Some of the later ones, but this one I think is fairly heteronormative. It, well, and it's not even heteronormative. It's fairly um, not concerned with that, amazingly. Like, even at the end when um, Ganya is asking, would you stay here for a little while? It's chast. Here for a while. She's just offering him a place to live. She's not really saying, you know, will you marry me necessarily, even though they call her his widow later on. But we don't get any of any of that story she's just like hey do you need a place to stay and he's like sure <laughs> yeah. um, but you're you're still in that the women stay home the women raise the children they're not going to fight they're not going to be part of the adventure it's still very much in that mm-hmm. world well and with Semily in the beginning she does go on an adventure and she goes mad when she comes back because it's been that long length of time when it was eight years or 16 where her whole world has changed around her so she literally like flings the necklace at her daughter and runs away to live in the woods they said which i don't think Le Guin meant this but because she's in that world it's interesting to see how semley is almost punished for going on an adventure without her husband's permission when rakanan is not yeah and I don't think that's done on purpose, but I think because of the society that it's, that the 
lives in that this happens sometimes accidentally. Well, and I think also, like, if we were to take this in a vacuum, I don't know that we would interpret Semele necessarily being punished. It was more that she didn't understand what would happen there, whereas mm -hmm. Rockanon has a greater understanding. But we can't always necessarily interpret uh, works in a vacuum, partially because we do have all of this other input into us. And being that you and I are fairly well read in terms of other uh, liter similar literature, we do kind of see, oh, gee, there's a little bit of a disparity there between these two adventures, which are kind of directly compared, like we said. Yeah. Semlin goes mad and, and rocking on because he understands the greater system doesn't. And I do think that part of it is just knowledge-based because she does she she doesn't trust the I can't remember the name of the the cave people, but you know she asks them multiple questions because she knows they're gonna try to trick her and she's like, so she does try, but because she does have a limited knowledge base, she gets tricked anyway. Mm-hmm. It they're called several different things. It's funny because they keep calling oh, them the troglodytes, the night folk. Yeah, but the yeah. Rockanon will refer to them as troglodytes because they are cave dwelling. And I'm like, because oh, I think it's clay folk because there was there was some sort of misprint where they called them in one of the French versions. They end up being called fish people. How do you know that? <laughs> it was in one of the introductions I read, and I just found that because because Jules Verne, his French. He wrote in French, and his English translations are sometimes just just so so bad, so badly bad. <laughs> so, okay. Yes, I think you're right. The clay folk is what the cave dwellers were called. Not uh, fish. Not fish people. No. <laughs> Do can we even have fish in caves? That's that's yeah. a question for another type of scientist. But yeah, I I like Trachanan's world. I think even you know, with the the implications that there's not really much for women to do there, which I think is okay, because Le Guin is a very talented writer, and reading her work once you kind of get into her style, which I will say, one thing I've found when I'm reading her books, even if I've come off reading another one of her books, like I read all, all three of the first artsy books in order, mm -hmm. and it always takes me like the first 30 pages or so, and those are the slowest going things, and then, but once I get to page 31, I'm, I like whip through the entire work, uh, particularly because they're so short, but it's the same with this one. I think if you're not used to the way she writes, it'll be slow in the beginning, but keep going because it is such a fascinating story that she has to tell you. It's true. Yeah. Oh, did you have any, any final thoughts? I don't think so. I think we talked about pretty much everything I had made little notes about. Yeah. Um, I want to know what was in his volume of Hanish poetry. I want to know what their poetry is like, but maybe we'll find that out in the future. I would hope so.
Umbrella Genre is recorded and produced by Casey Edinger and Naomi Thompson. This week we read Rockin' Anne's World by Ursula K. Le Guin, originally published in 1966. Our website is UmbrellaGenre.com, where you can find links to our social media, email, and how to suggest a book for this podcast. If you liked the podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform or tell a friend. Our theme music is The Middle Witch by FMT. Any ghost meows were provided by Munch the Cat. Thank you for listening, and please support your local libraries.